Meet Yelp for Restaurants. Not the software company, but the people who love restaurants so much they formed a team dedicated to our industry. Before Catherine joined the customer success team, she managed the modern in New York. Yeah, that modern. Before Julia joined the team, she worked at Oshaval in Chicago for half a decade. Yelp is for restaurants because our people are restaurant people. Meet the new Yelp at restaurants.yelp.com forward slash podcast. Now here we go. Carolyn's big fear was like, what if somebody comes in and they want the hanger steak, the arroz, and the broccoli, like all on one plate, right? Do we have any big plates in case people want that? And I was like, no, no, we don't have any big plates. Like we have to stay true to what we're doing because if you start giving in on it, then you can't create the vision. You can't execute the vision that you're trying to do. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. If every restaurant is a snowflake, unique and special in its own way, then so is every chef and restaurateur. Chef Suzanne Gowen is a total original. From the way she thinks, to the way she runs a restaurant, to her advocacy work, the chef is on a whole nother level. Today we chat about the choices she's made that have led to her massive successes and her plan to continue innovating in the future. It's funny, I kind of always knew if I was, I mean, from pretty early on, if I wanted to cook, that I wanted to own my own place. It was a multi, the dual goals. And so I wanted to work places where I love the food. I wanted to learn how to cook, but I always sort of had this eye to how people were running the restaurants where I was working. And I had an opportunity when I graduated from college, actually, so pretty early on, I'd been working at this restaurant called Al Forno in Providence. So I was working there three nights a week while I was going to college. When I graduated, it was sort of this big moment of academic path I was supposed to be on, or am I going to do this kind of, especially back then, kind of this wacky thing that did not seem like a normal choice. But at the time, the chef I was working for is a guy named Jamie D'Olivera. He was a chef at Al Forno, and he was leaving to open his own place. And I really just knew that I wanted to experience that, like what that actually meant. Like he was going through that same transition. He was a chef and opening his own place. And so how do you actually do that? So that was an incredible kind of crazy experience, but just really fun to be part of it from the ground up. And it was actually in Providence, Rhode Island. So there was a whole mafia mobster component that made things kind of exciting and crazy. I think just that experience for me really sort of laid the groundwork of what step-by-step you needed to do. After that, I worked at Chez Panisse and I went to France for a year and then I came back and I got a job at Campanile. I was actually hired as a chef of a new restaurant that was opening And that eventually kind of fell through. And in the meantime, I was working, I got a job at Campanile just as a line cook while I was waiting for this other place to open. And actually, I remember I told Mark Peel, I think I can probably give you like three months. And he goes, oh, three months, you'll be here for six months. And in the end, I was there for two years. So I started as a line cook and then they promoted me to sous chef. And eventually then I was chef to cuisine. And then Mark wanted to take a year off. And so they made me executive chef for my last year there. And that was actually just the perfect training ground because it was building on all those things that I had learned from opening this restaurant called Angels and the restaurants that I had worked in. But it was sort of like it was my restaurant, but it was, I had the backup of it wasn't really my restaurant. So they weren't my investors. And if things went down, it wasn't really on me, but it kind of felt like it was. I had to make all those hiring decisions and I did all the menus and had to go to the P&L meetings. And so it was really the perfect training for opening my own place because it was basically everything except the buck actually stopping with me, which just made when I went on to open Luke, 
it was that extra pressure of like, oh my God, now it really is on me. But then also kind of the joy of making the decision ultimately. I feel like I was sort of working on that path the whole time to get there, if that makes sense. When you conceptualized Luke, how much of it was culinary and then how much of it was this is the business of owning a restaurant. And these are the standards we're going to hold ourselves to. These are the metrics we're tracking, all of that. It really was about the food. I think I learned the other part along the way. Like I said, it kind of learned from places where I had worked. I mean, I knew what I was doing. You know, I knew about food costs. I knew about ordering. We were lucky then. It was 1998. I think our rent when we opened was $6,000, which is like, you know, for this 4,000 square feet on Melrose and La Cienega, it's like not happening anymore. So I think we had a little wiggle room for figuring stuff out. I kind of think oh, to succeed, it's four things. You know, you have to have the food, you have to have the ambiance, you have to have the business acumen. And then I think there's also a whole vibe part of it, which is like the vibe that you create for your guests, but it's also the vibe that you create for your staff. You have to know how to manage people because I've seen people who have all the other stuff right. But if you don't know how to talk to people, you don't know how to manage people, you don't know how to communicate, if you can't get that personal piece with your staff going, it makes it really, really hard to succeed. So I kind of was learning all those things along the way. And I think, like I said, with Luke, when we first opened, it really was about food and the space. Obviously, we knew we had the business part going and between Carol and I, we knew enough, but we learned so much along the way. What I didn't know then was how important that people part is. I'm lucky in that I worked for good people who treated people well. So that part was always kind of inherent. So I probably like absorbed it. And it might also be kind of part of, you know, like my personality. But that part is just, it's super key. I've had people who work for me who don't have that piece. And it just, no matter how good they are at all the other stuff, it just doesn't work. It's a real blessing. This is definitely a mentor-mentee dynamic within our industry. And so mm -hmm. if you work for great people, there's a higher probability that you'll be a great operator yourself. And if you don't, and Lord knows there are plenty of those people out there, you certainly start with a handicap. Yeah. What are the key decisions that you guys made in the early days of Luke that you think served you well for years to come? Part of it is that staffing thing. And we have so many people even now who've worked with us for a really long time. So I think developing those core people, I tend to almost always promote from within. So I think to build that staff that's committed, that's like-minded people who, you know, you can teach somebody how to cook, but you can't really teach the philosophy or the connection to, I guess, like that being headed for the same goal or in it for the same reasons. We've had some great cooks come in, people who've only cooked at home but they're passionate and they love my food or they love what we do. They love the markets. There's a kind of like simpatico there. And I think to develop those people, then they can become kind of like the best leaders. So I think we're pretty good about that, about kind of sensing good people and people who've got it and taking care of them along the way. So we could kind of really build a team. I think actually Carol and I were a good balance in that I came from a much more, you know, I worked at Chez Panisse and I was kind of like this more like hippie, like, we're not in it to make money kind of thing. <laughs> and Carolyn had worked for Sean McPherson at Jones Hollywood, which is very much like a money-making machine. So I think when we came together, it was a really good blend. It was sort of like I softened her, that part of her, and then she also got that part of me. And she's like, that's great, but if we go to business, then nobody has a job. So I think finding our way together and being able to sort of balance that helped a lot. I mean, we were lucky. We were busy from the beginning which helped a lot. Actually, I'm not a fancy ingredient person. For me, it's all about, I love playing around with some more traditionally, more sort of like peasant dishes and cooking, doing a stuffed veal breast or 
braising duck legs and things like that, that actually, especially early on, really helped us, I think, with our food costs. You opened a restaurant, I think, during a really interesting time in, let's say, the culinary history of Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. It was right at the beginning of this massive culinary evolution. Me being in fine dining in the mid-aughts, 2016, 2017, 2018, 2020, it's not very surprising. But in the late 90s, early 2000s, Los Angeles wasn't known for its culinary prowess. And you were one of the people that ushered that in. I would say that the level of competition has increased dramatically over the last 20 years. And when you and Caroline talk, in a back room about your business and your plans and all of this. Do you think in terms of competition or are you guys just playing your own game to the best of your ability? We're playing our own game to the best of our ability. I mean, you're aware. I think also we've been doing it for so long that I remember times when different restaurants opened and we slowed down a little bit and you're like, oh, well, everybody's going to check out this restaurant. Everyone's going to check it. And then it would always come back. Because I think one thing we worked really hard to do was to build really great regulars. We always had like a really great group of people who just loved our restaurant. We used to tell people that was our goal. You know, the staff, we'd say, you know, what you, because when you, it's easier when you're a brand new restaurant and when you're not, when you're five years old or seven years old or 10 years old or 12 years old, you don't have the new thing any, when you don't have the new thing anymore, you almost have to do more and you have to give more. So I think we're kind of aware of it in the back of our heads, but it's not, I mean, what are we going to do about it too? I mean, it's great. Like the more good restaurants, the better. So you just have to kind of really just keep honing in on what you do and do it as best you can and kind of just keep building your crew of regulars. It's funny when you talk about that time in 1998, when we were opening, you know, it was Campanile, Spago, Michaels, Patina. And I think one thing was really different about us when we opened and Campanile probably started this a little bit too, was it was sort of like we were serving fine dining food, but in a more casual atmosphere, which of course now everything is so casual or just it's now is whatever anybody wants to do, which is amazing. I think it was all part of a movement to just break up that whole traditional fine dining thing. But I remember definitely feeling like people couldn't quite put a finger on what we were doing, which is actually fine and cool. How many years were there between the opening of Luke and the opening of AOC? Four. Yeah, four years. That was a little bit of a pattern for a while. It was like every four years we'd get a little itch, like a creative itch to do something else. When I opened my first restaurant, all I could think about was the opening of my second restaurant. Oh, right? really? like, that's funny. You know, like I've learned so much. I'm going to do all of these things differently. It's going to be so much smoother and it's just a disaster in a different way. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, so funny. <laughs> it's just kind of the nature of the beast. It's funny. But, we were but, the opposite. When we were opening Luke, I had no idea I would ever have more than one restaurant. It was very like focused on that one thing. I think it was maybe it was also less common too to have multiple places back then. It was kind of a crazy three, four years in. We just started to get a little bit of a looking around and. Like, I love the design process. I love the concept. And I'll say now that I love the openings, although when I'm in them, I'm like, this is hell. Like, what am I doing? Like having children. You don't have the next one until you forgot how bad it was to have the first. It totally is exactly correct. The AOC definitely grew out of Luke. I mean, we had a bar that was about 10 seats, 10 or 12 seats. And we got really busy really quickly and much more than we expected. So we didn't expect to be a place where like you have to call, get reservations six weeks in advance and all that kind of stuff. That took us totally by surprise. We really wanted to be like a neighborhood place and we wanted to be accessible and have regulars. And so what started happening was that people in the neighborhood are kind of like younger creative types would just come hang out at the bar and it sort of developed its own scene and people would come and order a couple plates and pass them around and share. And that was sort of where that idea for AOC came from. It was like, what if we took that and made a whole restaurant out of it? 
when we opened, our wine list was one page. And so that had definitely grown and Carolyn's interest in it had really grown. And so, and I love cheese too. For me, like a real driver for AOC was cheese, was to open, was have that cheese bar and push the, we had five options instead to have 25 options. So that was kind of where that all came from. So it was definitely a very organic, it was not any kind of rational, planned, premeditated situation. It was just really, it definitely grew out of it. Did you do anything differently? Were there lessons that came from the first opening that you brought into the second? It was definitely easier, for sure easier the second time around. I think some silly stuff like kitchen design stuff, it was easier to recruit people. It was easier to raise money because we had a pre-existing. It was easier to get staff. One other reason for opening was our staff had almost outgrown Luke and that we had two really great front of the house managers and we had two really great chefs in the kitchen. And it was a little bit like everybody was vying for that top spot. And it was a, nice to be able to say like, okay, actually, why doesn't one, you know, one front of the house and one kitchen person come over here and you have a new place? So that helped a lot. All the silly stuff, like we had a plumber, we had an electrician, we knew how to do the POS system. like, But because it was a different concept, that was the part that was more and because it wasn't really a concept that was around a lot. So just doing that small plates thing, which of course now it's just like, you're almost like you're tired of hearing about it. But at that time, nobody was really doing it. So we had to figure out like, well, how does the ordering work? Like, how do we course it out? How do we explain it to the guests? Like, how does all that work? So I think the fact that we knew how to do all the other part made it easier to make that happen. We had the same dynamic at Pru and Proper. It was family style. Plates come out as the dishes are prepared. But having said that, by the time we did it in 2014, it was a very familiar concept. I can only imagine being in your place as a server and having to say, like, food's going to come out when it comes out. It's going to come out in whatever order it comes out in. And good luck with that. Like, that, And you're going to share it. Right. Right. It had to be, I would assume, a master class in storytelling and a master class in building confidence in your ability to execute for the guests, because that's an entirely new guest experience, right? Absolutely. Carolyn's big fear was like, what if somebody comes in and they want the hanger steak, the arroz and the broccoli, like all on one plate, right? Do we have any big plates in case people want that? And I was like, no, 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 we don't have any big plates. Like we have to stay true to what we're doing because if you start giving in on it, then you can't create the vision. You can't execute the vision that you're trying to do. Prior to the pandemic, I could barely use my iPhone. I'm a restaurateur, not a tech guru. But over the last two years, we've seen that tech can play a vital role in helping us make more money and save money. And that tech can show up at some pretty unlikely places, like your kitchen sink. Dawn Professional is a detergent and degreaser that can help reduce your labor expense and your overhead on cleaning supplies through leveraging the latest technological innovation in cleaning products. Dawn Professional Multi-Service Heavy-Duty Degreaser is specifically formulated to cut grease two times faster versus the leading food service degreasers. While Dawn Professional Manual Pot and Pan Dish Detergent cleans 58% more pots and pans per sink, reducing sink changeover versus the leading competitor's professional dish soap. Save time and money by upgrading to Dawn Professional Manual Pot and Pan Dish Detergent and Dawn Professional Multi-Service Heavy-Duty Degreaser from PNG Professional. But we had a wood-burning oven, and the place we'd taken over was a old... It was actually two spaces, had been two spaces, and one was Antica Pizzeria. So there was a wood-burning oven, but it was separate from our kitchen. So part of what drove that, too, was that, okay, there was no way to communicate with that person. So 
the things from the oven are just going to, they're going to cook them. And when they're ready, they're going to send them out. Like some of it was just even practical. Like, I don't know how we're going to figure that out. And actually it might've been what made the restaurant really engaging for people because whereas now you don't want to hear it now, but at the moment it was like, you had to explain to people kind of what we were doing and why we were doing it. And same thing with the cheese. We had 25 cheeses. I put the cheese on the first page of the menu because I wanted people, my thing is I love cheese, but if you do it sort of the traditional French way, by the end of the meal, I'm not hungry anymore. So we used to always at home eat cheese first. So just kind of pushing people to do that. And I tried to bring in all these really unusual cheeses that people didn't know. And so again, like the servers, we had very rigorous testing with the servers and we had 50 ones with the glass. They had to really be on their game. And, but I think that made a great guest experience. I remember at one point, like on the, I was working at the cheese bar, like in a couple early weeks and it was, people were like trading plates and sharing their food. And it was like, oh my God, this is exactly like it happened. Like this is what we worked so hard to do. And it, people actually got it. And I feel like as much as the time probably as they still think, like people think that the LA dining public, maybe more than was just very like sauce on the side. And can I get vegetables? And can I get steamed carrots with that instead? I have to say that people just went with it, which was great. We had all these sort of backup plans about what to do if people ask for this or that. And actually people like, oh, you want me to order cheese in the beginning of the meal? Okay. They just went for it. It was so rewarding to actually be able to build that thing that kind of was in my head to make it actually happen. Most of that has to do with confidence, right? Your confidence in your program, you being able to instill that confidence in your team, giving them the tools, giving them the storytelling, because something I don't want to gloss over that you said that I think is incredibly important is being true to self and being true to the concept you created. I'm sure you do the same thing. I walk into restaurants all the time and you can tell that they started with a very singular concept that just bled out over time. I was talking with a restaurateur recently and it's an Italian concept. And I was like, you know, what's the most popular item on the menu? And they were like, the burger. And I'm like, well, <laughs> you've punked yourself. And they're like, yeah. people love the burger here. And yeah. I'm like, well, I mean, yes, is people that love really burgers. why you opened right. the restaurant? And it's so easy in an industry where you receive direct feedback. Mm -hmm. It's one of the only industries in the world where people will walk up to you and say, you're doing a terrible job. Yep. <laughs> and here's why. Right. You know? Here's what um, you should be doing. Exactly. Pro and proper was a Southern concept, specifically New Orleans. And I was born and raised in the area. And, and it builds a culture of, you know, there's a lot of pride in food, especially food that speaks directly to heritage. And people would come into the kitchen all the time and say, hey, that's not really how you make gumbo. This is how you make gumbo. And my grandmother <laughs> makes a great gumbo. And I would say all the time, like, let's get her in the kitchen. If she can handle, you know, 150 to 200 covers right. a night, <laughs> Bring you her know, she's got a job. Right. <laughs> On the other hand, I feel that Italian restaurant, when you talk about the business aspect, yeah, I get it. It's like, then you get that financial pressure and people, if, I, if you just had a burger, like people would come and then they could bring their kids and then, and then you're right. But it, then it just, it like domino effects down and you kind of lose the soul of what you're doing. I guess I feel like we were lucky in that we thought we were going to have a lot more pushback and people went for it, which was amazing. Let's talk about AOC Brentwood because, right, it's your flagship concept, but kind of at the end of, kind of in the middle of, I don't know where we are in the pandemic, but- <laughs> Please I, tell me where the end. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> We're on a virtual call and I'm wearing a mask. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but 
I can't imagine that the pandemic itself did not impact the opening in the way you thought about it, in the way that you define success for the location, in the way that you chose to operate it. Lord knows, I think we all learned a lot of lessons about ourselves and about the business from the pandemic. What changed in the opening of Brentwood? We've been open for 10 years and it was kind of time for a change. The space was beautiful, but it was so big. And this is again where that financial thing comes. I mean, it was 7,000 square feet. We had three different. We had the larder, so we had prepared food and more like a cafe in front. We'd have to have three hosts at all times. It's like a city block. I mean, it's huge. We just thought, we need to make a change. Like, what should we do? And actually, our landlords were amazing, which you don't hear that often. But they were so great about working with us because they really wanted us to stay. And they really wanted us to do something. And they were like, well, what do you guys need to do? It's like, well, we need to shrink the space. Like, we just can't keep at this rent and volume. And the first thing they want to do is they want, they're like, okay, we'll take the front space. And I was like, well, no, 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 we want the front space. So actually they were great. And they took back the atrium and we went back and forth about different concepts and different things to do. And I love AOC. We have so many people from the West side who come to third street and it's like, oh, if you guys were just on the other side of four or five and, oh, you know, I come once a month, but we'd come once a week. And we just decided that that was basically the best move for us at this point would be to do a second AOC. You know, we had new concepts coming with the hotel right around the same time. So it was just like something just didn't feel appealing. I didn't feel inspired to do it. I was more inspired to do another AOC. So the plan had been to kind of, and again, this is funny how the pandemic totally changed how you think one financially and two, like what's possible. Like, would you ever imagine you like close your restaurant for two months, three months, whatever. So our original plan had been that we were going to keep half the restaurant open, like keep it open as tavern while we started construction on one side And then we would finish construction there and then we would flip and be open in that part while we finished the other part. Because how would you close for six months? It just was not possible, not a thing. So then the pandemic hit and our landlords were actually really great. And we ended up just basically closing and working on that construction during the pandemic, which was extra crazy because like there was a moment during the pandemic, you probably feel the same way. There was, especially in the beginning, it was like, okay, a restaurant's just done. Like, is this... Yeah. I literally remember Nancy Silverton calling me and she was like, I don't know how to do anything else. Do you? And I was like, no, I don't know how to do anything else. She's like, maybe we need to learn how to knit masks. And I was like, yes, maybe we need to learn how to knit masks. Like, what's going to happen? I turned to my business partners. I mean, we had a fine dining restaurant and I was like, our rent's $21,000 a month. How many burgers and hot dogs are we going to have to sell out the back door to make rent every month? Yeah. You know? That's even, remember in the beginning, we had, beginning was like, oh, it'll be a month. Remember, we had no like idea of what was going to happen, but. But I guess it was like a leap of faith. I don't know. Or maybe it was just blind ignorance or prayers or I don't know what. We basically worked on the remodel during the pandemic, which was just bizarre. I mean, it kept, of course, like starting and stopping. It took like three times longer than it would have just because like the contractor would get COVID or you couldn't get any of the tiles or the supplies that you needed. But we just kept tugging along. It was actually good, I think, to have sort of that creative, like exciting, forward looking thing, even if there was a part of me that was like, are we just dreaming here? this is ever really going to open and be a restaurant. I think just, to, but to have that in the middle of all that darkness was, you know, let's go look at wallpaper. Like, okay, like the sky is falling. Let's go look at wallpaper. <laughs> um, so in the end, I think it was great. Like we could kind of wait. And again, this part of it was our landlord just being really working with us. I think that we were able to wait until it was like a great moment to open. And we opened at a time where I think everybody was so sick of being stuck inside, excited for something new. I mean, the staffing was hard, but we had enough of our former employees 
to bring back and just like get it started. I mean, we started with five days because we couldn't staff seven days, but it's actually been like a very exciting kind of joyful operation and thing to do. It gave us actually something positive to be working on. And I think everybody at both restaurants now feels a part of making that happen. We went to six days and we went to seven days. We just recently opened for lunch and brunch. So yeah, it's, it's been great. Talk to me about your relationship with Caroline. I mean, your partnership has outlasted, I would argue, <laughs> most marriages in Los Angeles. It's crazy, right? I um, mean, it, it, it is. It is actually very much like a marriage. You know, it's funny. We didn't know each other when we decided to open a restaurant together, which is funny. I was a little bit ahead of her in terms of looking like I was looking to open a place. I'm going to open something small. I did not have a front of the house partner. I kind of hadn't really thought it through. She was also looking to open a restaurant and didn't have a chef. And we had mutual friends who introduced us. And we kind of just hit it off and we started just going out to eat to kind of like experience stuff together, you know, like to see what we liked and get to know each other. And, and it was strange because it was like everywhere we went, we felt like we liked the same things. We had the same reactions. We were very much simpatico about the vision of what we wanted, how we reacted to things. But it was funny because I remember I'd been working with my attorney to open this restaurant. I remember I called him. I said, hey, so I met this woman. And I think I might partner with her. And he was like, what are you talking about? I said, well, she's great. And this and this and that. And he's like, have you ever worked with her before? Do you know anyone who's worked with her before? And it's like, no. <laughs> so I was like, I don't know. It just feels really right. And I could see him like, I'm sure like rolling his attorney eyes, like what the hell are you talking about? But it's funny. We just took like this leap of faith. And in the time it took us a year and a half to find the space for Luke, which was torture. Cause I was so, you know, I was young. I was like so eager to do this sure. thing. Now I had this person it was like, we would find things and then it would either be too expensive or it would fall through or whatever would happen. And, but in the end, it was a good thing because it gave us like, we had that year and a half to actually get to know each other and to work together on something and have some conflicts. So it wasn't just all, you know, in the beginning it was all like, we're exactly the same and we like everything, you know, but we kind of, to kind of get to know each other and, and figure things out. I remember the first time we had like a blow up and I remember annoyed about something it was like the first time I actually like said it all she cried there's a whole thing we didn't talk to her for two days and that's all those things that you need to do to be successful right in any relationship like if you just go along like everything's fine and hold everything inside it never works so I think we did a lot of that like in our early years I mean we still every once in a while we'll have something we disagree on but very rarely I think we know how important the relationship is and we both really value it and we also know we can't mess it up so if there is something going on we both would rather talk about it than be angry or feel resentful or whatever other things can do. Cause that's just going to bleed into the restaurants and bleed into everything that we do. And I think we both value the relationship, but also the businesses too much to let that happen. But like literally the last 10 years, it's been really easy, like, or 15 years. I think we got to a point where we figured each other out and we kind of know each other's strengths and weaknesses. And like, I know when she's being moody because she's upset about something else. I know it's not about me. And she knows when I'm like, when we change the menu, I always turn into an asshole. And then I'm okay. We like a week later, <laughs> she's like, Oh, it's just that it's menu changing time. Like everybody back up. So yeah, it's been super, super lucky. I would not want to do it alone. What is the central focus in your relationship? Because I think that partnerships are no different than marriages, right? You're in love, then you're out of love. It's less about love and more about respect. We'll be roommates for the next few months and then we'll sort our shit out. All of these different dynamics at play. But in my own partnerships, what I found is if I focus on the personal relationship while remaining aligned professionally, mm -hmm. it works. But what mm -hmm. I found is if I spend more time feeding the personal 
or the professional mm-hmm. and not the personal, the gears get a little rusty. Is that been your experience as well? So I would say for us, probably the key to our success as partners is that we have the same focus. I think we both want the restaurants to be really great. We work hard, but we care about the same. Like Saturday night, I was working at one of the restaurants and a bunch of stuff went down in the front of the house and she actually was off. And when I go to tell her about it, she has the exact same reaction. Like, I don't have to explain why I'm upset. She has the same. I think we have the same vision on hospitality, how we treat our staff and how the staff should treat each other, how the restaurant should look. So all that is aligned. And I think what used to get in the way before would be if I ever told her something about the front of the house, she would take it really personally and get upset. But she can look beyond that. Like, I'm not criticizing her. I have to let her know what I saw, just like she would let me know whatever she sees on my side of things or whatever an issue is on my side of things. And I think there's also like a mutual respect. So I think it's in the way that we talk about it. But I think that it works because we both want almost exactly the same thing. And we've been doing it together for so long. We both know what that is without ever having to explain it. So I think that that's what makes it work in addition to the ways that we've kind of both matured and like nurtured the relationship or whatever you want to say. Like we've really learned to like work together and how to communicate with each other. And I try to feed both the personal and the professional. It's an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. There are tens of thousands of restaurant owners and operators listening. Do you have any advice or words of encouragement you'd like to share? I think just keep following your heart and keep doing what you love and don't let it get muddied by whatever trends there might be or whatever people are telling you. I mean, I remember, like you were saying, I used to always say, do people go into lawyers' offices and critique the stuff on the wall or like the way they're answering the phone or what the music's playing or whatever it might be? But I think there is something about following your vision and staying true to what you do. And I think remembering that it's those, like I said, it's kind of like those four things that you need to deliver. I feel like the people part it's so much more rewarding. It's nice because I've been doing this so long and I have so many people that I've been working with for a really long time. Like we just actually, the Hollywood Bowl is ramping up again right now. We have a lot of people who come back year after year after year. And it's actually so, you know, to like, I've been seeing those people for, some of them I haven't seen for a couple of years because of the pandemic. We had a mini season last year, but like that feeling, I don't know, restaurant people, when we come back together, it's just like, there's like sort of nothing like it. So I think to value those relationships and to kind of build that in the end, it's better for your business. Like it feels good. It's just better for your soul and your happiness. And that's the part maybe that people don't put as much enough value into. I mean, definitely there's much more talk now about taking care of your staff, which is more like not screaming at them or throwing pans at them or all the stuff that that I went through in the early days and health insurance. and Yes, all those things. But I think a lot of it's really that personal connection, building that culture of your restaurants or your places. And To me, that's like one of the most rewarding things is to have kind of like this restaurant family. That's Suzanne Gowen. For more on the chef and her projects, visit AOCWineBar.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.